turn with me to John 14. Gospel of John, chapter 14. We come to the conclusion of this glorious chapter in John's Gospel. And we'll be reading verses 28 through 31. John 14, verses 28 through 31. And considering the love of the Father. John 14, verses 28 through 31. Give attention to God's holy word. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come now to the preaching of your word. And we pray, Lord, for strength, especially at the end of this day, that you, by your Spirit, would give us energy to pay heed, and through this means, as Isaiah told us, to seek your face when we are near, uh, when you are near. We pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as I'm sure you're very aware, there are many today that speak about the love of God. There are many who say that they love God. You've seen the bumper stickers, love God, love people. Many take this to mean uh, what many think that love to the Father is, is an emotional and carnal good feeling about God. Many are moved by a song and think that this is the love of the Father. Many are moved by a sermon, and they think this is what it means to love the Father. Many are wrong. Love for the Father. The true love of the Father means two things. To glorify and to enjoy God forever. Now, the only way to achieve this love, the only way to actually live out the first question of our catechism, to glorify and enjoy God forever, is by the work of the Spirit transforming our hearts. And the only model that we have that shows us what does it mean to glorify God and enjoy Him forever is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to see in this passage is that Christ models for us the true love of the Father. Now let me explain something, because sometimes this phrase can be a little confused. Often when you hear people speak of the love of the Father, what they have in mind is His love towards us. As I'm using this phrase, the love of the Father, that is our love towards Him. 
It would be similar to if you asked somebody and they said, I have a deep and abiding love of donuts. That means that they have love towards the donuts. Likewise here, Christ models the true love of the Father, love towards the Father, by glorifying the Father in His ministry of teaching and enjoying the Father in His ministry of dying. I'll say this one more time. Christ models the true love of the Father by glorifying the Father in His ministry of teaching and enjoying the Father in His ministry of dying. There's two things in our passage. Glorifying and enjoying. Verses 28 and 29, Christ glorifies the Father. Verses 30 and 31, Christ enjoys the Father. Verses 28 and 29, Christ glorifies the Father. Verses 30 and 31, Christ enjoys the Father. And so we turn first to glorifying the Father. Notice that as Christ begins this section in verse 28, he reminds them of his teaching up to this point. Look at what he says. You have heard me say to you, quote, I am going away and coming back to you, end quote. This, uh, you have heard, it's, it's describing a reception of Christ's doctrine. You've heard me say these things. You have received it in some manner. You've received my doctrine. This is a very common term for receiving doctrine. You know the great Shema in the book of Deuteronomy? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. That's a command to receive the teaching. Adam, in the Garden of Eden, he heard the voice of the Lord God. He, he received the message that God was present. Now this reception can be either good or bad. Simply hearing the doctrine of the Word of God, you can receive it in a good way or you can receive it in a bad way. And I want you to keep that in mind because as we move through this passage, you're going to see how Christ corrects their reception a little bit. But just keep that in mind. We can hear the Word of God in a good way or in a bad way. Well, Christ tells them, you have heard me say this, quote, I am going away and coming back to you, end quote. That statement, I am going away and coming back to you, is a summary of the entire gospel. This is a summary of the entire gospel message and the entire gospel doctrine. Let's look at it more closely for a little while. The first half of what he says is that I am going away. There's two things in this statement. I go. The subject and the verb the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He first says that I am the one that's going. By the way, just as a, a uh, kind of an aside, all four Gospels follow this basic threefold pattern. Person, work, return. 
Consider John's gospel. In John chapter 6, verse 69, kind of the, the end of the first third of John's gospel. Turn with me. John 6, verse 69. John 6, verse 69. Christ has just taught them. Uh, he's taught the people that very potent doctrine that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood if you would have eternal life abiding in you. And everyone is shocked by this. Many people leave because this doctrine is very hard to receive. And then in verse 67, he asks the twelve. Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, this marks a transition in John's gospel. They now have identified the person. They know that Jesus of Nazareth is the incarnate Son of God. Now, from this point forward, the transition is going to now begin to talk about his death on the cross. Look at John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 28. There's going to be more explicit teaching about his death now. John 8, 28, just as an example. When you lift up the Son of Man... Lifting up is a reference to the cross. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. So we have person, we have work, and now in John 14 we have the return. Really the whole chapter of John 14 is strengthening the hearts of the disciples that Christ is going to return. And so in John 14, at the very end of John 14, Christ summarizes his own doctrine in his person and work. Firstly, I go. These are the two pillars of gospel doctrine which if a man does not believe, he cannot be saved. If you do not believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God incarnate in the flesh, And if you do not believe that his death on the cross is a substitutionary atonement for your sins, you cannot be saved. These are the basics of the gospel. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3. He writes to the Corinthians and says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received... And in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This is the gospel that saves you, brothers and sisters. These are the meat and potatoes of your spiritual life. You know, I think uh, sometimes for Reformed believers, it's, it's, it's easy for us to get lost in the sauce, so to speak. You ever watch a cooking show? My wife and I like to watch cooking shows sometimes. And, you know, sometimes they put out some really interesting dishes. There's a gigantic plate with a thimble of steak and a Picasso painting of sauce all over the plate. And... You look at that and you think, I'll bet that tastes amazing, but that's not going to feed me. Sometimes as Reformed believers, we approach doctrine that way. 
We want the, the fancy, uh, tasty, uh, elaborate doctrines, but that's not going to feed our souls. We need a hearty double portion of Christ and Him crucified to be saved. And as Paul says, we need to hold fast to this if we're going to endure to the end. So Christ summarizes this for the disciples. He summarizes his doctrine. This is also the summary of true gospel ministry. You see the same thing in, uh, well, you see this in 1 Corinthians 2. Paul writing to the Corinthians, he says, Brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul says, this is the summary of my ministry. Preaching Christ and His crucifixion. Now back in John 14, we have the second half of Christ's doctrine. You see, the gospel message is not just that Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God. The gospel doctrine is not just that the Son of God incarnate died for our sins on the cross. The gospel doctrine is that this incarnate Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us is also returning to receive us to Himself. And so Christ says in John 14, 28, You have heard me say to you, I am going away and I am coming back to you. This is a complete summary of gospel doctrine. As we learned this morning, this is the hope of the gospel, the return of Christ. This is why we labor and strive in the faith of Jehovah. This is why we make the sacrifices. This is why we separate from the world. This is why we gather Lord's Day after Lord's Day to hear the preaching of the Word, because we hope in this return. And this is what Christ gives to the disciples. Just as a brief reminder, the very beginning of John 14, he tells them, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Paul writes about this in Titus as we saw this morning. This is the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, when Paul is comforting the Thessalonians about those who have died, he says that our comfort in death is that when Christ comes with the voice of the archangel, the heavens will be opened, the graves will be opened, and all those who have died in Christ, we will meet him together in the air with them. The return of Christ is the hope of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, let me just encourage you at this point. You and I never outgrow meat and potatoes. You and I never will outgrow this simple gospel doctrine. Christ went and he's coming back. If any of your speculations about doctrine if any of your investigations into Reformed theology lead you away from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've made a misstep somewhere. 
You've taken a wrong turn somewhere. Never leave this path. Well, Christ says, you have heard me say this to you. He summarizes the doctrine for them, but now, notice, remember I mentioned, we can receive doctrine, but we can receive it in the wrong way. The disciples have received this doctrine in the wrong way. Notice how he corrects them. You have heard me say, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice. Notice what Christ is doing. He's saying, you've received the doctrine, and if you'd received it the right way, you would be rejoicing at what I told you. You would be over the moon because I've told you I'm going to the Father. So Christ corrects them and says, you've heard the doctrine, but you haven't heard it the right way. To hear doctrine and misuse it is to receive it in a bad sense. It is to receive it in a carnal manner. This is the sin of Judaism, wasn't it? Romans 10, verses 1 through 4. Turn there very quickly. Romans 10, verses 1 through 4. Judaism made this mistake. Paul lays open his heart. He said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They have heard the doctrine, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They received the law from Moses, but they put it to a wrong use. They received the doctrine, but it didn't lead them to Christ. This was the sin of Judaism. They received it, but they received it in the wrong way. This is also a mistake we can make today. Turn to Jude, that very tiny letter right before Revelation. Jude, verses 3 and 4. Notice very carefully how Jude writes this. In verse 3, Jude is, is writing to his audience and he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. Notice that Jude wanted to write to them joy and rejoicing. He wanted to just revel in the glories of Christ with them. I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. That term, the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, is a summary term for the doctrine of the gospel. In this sense, when he says the faith, he means the body of doctrine, the truths of Scripture. You must contend earnestly for the faith. Verse 4, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men, notice, who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, false teachers... They take the grace of God, they hear the message that God forgives sinners, and they put it to a wrong use. They receive that gospel of grace, and then they say, this means we can sin. 
Because God forgives us of our sins. They received the doctrine, but put it to a wrong use. There are many teachers like this in our day. For the sake of time, I won't go through them right now. But I think you understand the mistake that's being described here. We need to be very careful that when we receive doctrine, we put it to the right use. So Christ teaches them the proper use of gospel doctrine. Notice what he says in verse 28. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father. Notice, brothers and sisters, notice my Presbyterian brothers and sisters, sometimes affectionately or not so affectionately called the frozen chosen. The purpose of gospel doctrine, the way that you use gospel doctrine, is by rejoicing. The proper use of the gospel is to rejoice in God's goodness to you. It's to give thanks for all the good things He has done. It is to lift your hearts out of sin and sorrow. But notice why we rejoice. Look at what He says. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Let me just make a comment at this point. This is a little off script, but I I want to encourage you. There's a carnal rejoicing, and there's a spiritual rejoicing. The, The joy that Christ is talking about, the joy that the Scriptures hold out, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, etc. This joy is a joy that's not dependent on our circumstances. And it's not a joy that is, that is not often mixed with weeping. This joy that's being talked about is a spiritual joy and rejoicing that believers have through union with Christ and reconciliation to the Father. We just sang it in Psalm 23. David says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runs over. You anoint my head with oil. All those are symbols of joy and rejoicing. And so this gospel doctrine should cause us to have joy. Well, he he goes further and says, why should we rejoice in it though? Because the Father is greater than him. Notice also how he corrects them. Not only did they receive the gospel the wrong way, the doctrine the wrong way, they also had the wrong kind of love for Christ. Look at what he says. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. He shows that they have a carnal love for Christ. True love for Christ would have rejoiced that he was returning to the Father for two reasons. To be with the Father is the highest good and love seeks the best for others. You see, what's going on here is the disciples don't want Jesus to go. And at one level, you can understand it. Christ is their Lord. Christ is their friend. Christ is their Savior. He's the Son of David. He's the incarnate Son of God. They know this. They love Christ. And they don't want Him to be taken away from them because they're not seeking the best 
for Christ. To go to the Father is the highest good that any of us can enjoy. And Christ is saying, if you loved me with a spiritual love, if you were seeking my best and not simply what you wanted, you would rejoice because I told you I'm going to the Father. So there is a bit of carnal selfishness here in their hearts when he says, if you had loved me, you would rejoice. This love for Christ and and Christ's love for the Father, glorifying God and His doctrine, all comes from love to the Father. Notice what he says. The very end of verse 28. My Father is greater than I. You see, Christ puts it in perspective that His own doctrine, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't end with the Lord Jesus Christ. It ends with the glory of the Father. Its purpose is to glorify the Father, not Christ alone, but Christ as the mediator who brings us to the Father. The Father is greater than I. Now this could mean a couple of things. This is a debated passage. This could mean in his estate of incarnation. Christ could be saying, as the incarnate Son of God... As the son of David, God the Father is greater than I, according to his human nature. This could also refer to the whole plan of redemption. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is writing about the plan of redemption and what will happen at the end. 1524. 1 Corinthians 15. 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that would be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, It is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. That can be a very confusing passage. Let me try and distill it for you. What Paul is saying is that right now Christ is reigning as the mediator. He's reigning as the son of David. He's building up his kingdom. He has the plumb line in his hand, and he's building the house of God by bringing sinners to himself. But once Christ has defeated the last enemy, once Christ has finished building the kingdom, he's then going to hand the whole thing over to the Father. He's going to give it all over to the Father, and then God, as Paul says, will be all in all. I think when Christ says the Father is greater than I... I think he means both at the same time. Christ, as our mediator, is building a kingdom right now. But the purpose of that kingdom is not for Christ to be exalted, uh, be exalted by himself. The purpose of that kingdom is for Christ to establish his people and then to hand all of that over to the Father. The meaning then is that Christ in his work as our mediator is not seeking to exalt himself at the expense of the Father. Rather, the purpose of Christ's mediation is to bring us to the Father 
For the Father is greater than Christ. Hence, the Father should be higher in our affections even as it was in Christ's affections. Let me just say it this way. I realize we're, we're walking in places where angels dare to tread. When Paul tells us we've received the spirit of adoption, what do the adopted sons of God cry out? Abba, Father. They don't cry out, Abba, Christ. They cry out, Abba, Father. And so Christ says, the Father is greater than I. This, when he says, I'm going to the Father, is a prediction of his ascension. He's going to die on the cross, he's going to be buried, but then he'll be raised again and he'll be ascended up to heaven to the Father. Remember that the disciples are troubled and sorrowful at the prospect of Christ's death and departure. In the midst of this sorrow, it's hard to believe that there will be life after death. You ever gone through the valley of the shadow of death? You ever buried a loved one? You ever, you ever lost when circumstances all seem to be against you, when nothing you do seems to work, when everywhere you look around, it's as if the Lord's hand is against you and you can sense the sentence of death in yourself. That's how the disciples are feeling. And Christ tells them, I'm going to go to the Father. And that's why he supplies them. Look at what he says in verse 29. Now, I've told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you'll believe. We glorify God by receiving and using true doctrine rightly. What is it to receive doctrine rightly? It's to receive the doctrine by faith and to use it to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. It is to receive the summary of the gospel and, as Christ says, to rejoice, having received the truth of the gospel. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, he describes the joy that we have even in the midst of fiery trials. Look at what he says. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, joy in the midst of the fire, worshiping and praising the Son of Man in the midst of the fiery furnace. This is the joy of the gospel, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, who is coming back to us. Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
This is what it means to receive the doctrine. To rejoice with joy, unspeakable and full of glory. This is how we glorify the Father. But not only do we glorify the Father, we also enjoy the Father. We not only take pride in the family name, but we also play catch with our Father. Verses 30 and 31, Christ now speaks of enjoying the Father. Notice in verse 30, he transitions now to the other part of his ministry. I will no longer talk much with you. I don't have much more to teach you. I will no longer speak with you much more. For the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. This is a transition to the second part of his ministry, his death. The teaching is coming to an end. The prince of this world is coming. This is a reference to the devil. Uh, He's called the prince of this world because he has the power of death. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Christ is the one who had the power of death, and, and before Christ defeated him on the cross... He held the whole world in sway through the fear of death. Christ says, this prince is coming to me. All those who crucified Christ were so many tools in the devil's hands. Judas was inspired by Satan. The priests, Christ said, you you clean out the house and send out the unclean spirit, and then seven more unclean spirits come and fill it up. The Romans, of course, pagans under the power of the devil. And the crowd, irrationally and bloodthirsty, crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. All tools of the devil. Notice also that Christ says, he has nothing in me. This is a reference to Christ's sinless perfection. What Christ is saying here is that the prince of the world who has the power of death is coming to get me, but I'm guilty of no sin. I have no guilt, and therefore I have no debt to pay. Death has no power over me. Satan has no claims on me. Satan can come and try to take my life, but he has no rights over my life because he has nothing in me. Now, there's a very important truth here. Christ's death was completely voluntary. Christ's death was not because he was overpowered. Though Satan, with all the powers of Rome and the Jews, tried to kill him, at the end of the day, Christ said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down freely. Brothers and sisters, see how much Christ loves you. Nobody had claims on his life. Nobody had rights over his life except for him. And he laid it down willingly for your sake. He not only laid his life down out of love for us, but he also laid it down because of his love for the Father. Look at what he says. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do arise, let us go from here. Verse 31. The motive for his death primarily is his love for the Father. Secondarily, his love for you and I. Note the two things that he says. One, so that the world may know 
that I love the Father. This was a key element in his doctrine. Uh, John 8, 54 through 58, we won't turn there for the sake of time, but you remember that all throughout John's gospel, Christ says, I and my Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. I always do what the Father tells me. The Jews ask him, who is your Father? He says, God's my Father. So throughout his doctrine, he, he talks about his unique relationship to the Father. Now, so that the world will know that I love the Father, I'm going to die on the cross. To bear witness to his doctrine, Christ now dies for the truth. Brothers and sisters, this, this may one day come again in our lives. Maybe it'll be in our children's lives, maybe our grandchildren's lives. Maybe God will spare us, and our generation of the church will never have to shore up our walls with the bloods of the martyrs. But often throughout the church, it is required for those who bear witness to die for the truth. Christ dies for the sake of the truth. This is also the call of all those who would be ministers. John Calvin once said that a minister, to be a true minister of God, must be ready to die for his doctrine. Calvin, in his seminary in Geneva, they sent out so many missionaries, and so many of these reformed young men went out to preach, and they were killed one after another. It was known as the Seminary of Martyrs. Christ gives us the example, and notice he's willing to die for his doctrine out of love for the Father, so that the world might know that I love the Father. I'm going. Notice also it's as the Father gave him commandment. Paul says in Romans 13, 10, love is the fulfilling of the law. See, here is true love for the Father. It's not emotion. It's not a, a warm feeling. It's fulfilling God's commandments. That's what Christ is doing. So that the world may know that I love the Father, I'm going to fulfill his commandment. Christ models this for us, even unto death, out of love for the Father. This is the motive for all of our obedience. All of our obedience is love to the Father. John writes in 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. Now think about that. Christ just said, I'm going to die the bloody death on the cross because I love the Father, and this is not grievous. The death on the cross, the mocking of the Romans, the bitterness and spite of the Jews is not grievous. The reason his commandments are not grievous is because of the love of the Father that the Holy Spirit puts in us. Remember Jacob when he fell in love with Rachel? He labored seven years, and they seemed to him like only a day. That labor was not grievous because of the love that he had for her. Likewise, love for the Father makes his commandments not grievous. And so if we would obey, if we would learn the joy of keeping his commandments, we must grow in our love for the Father. This is also the way that we endure suffering. Love for the Father. That's how Christ is going to endure. Not because he's going to get anything out of it immediately. Not because it's fun. Not because it feels good. But because he loves the Father. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. Whom He justified, these He also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor Satan, nor all of his demonic forces, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Whatever you go through, nothing can separate you from it. Don't let your circumstances separate you from loving the Father. Well, Christ concludes this passage by saying, let us go hence. There's debate about what this means. It may just mean he's, they're, they're moving on now. Um, it's hard to say with the way John writes this passage. This may be a, a repeat of what Christ said in Matthew 10. He who would follow me, he who would be my disciple, let him take up his cross and follow me. Just as Christ has said, I'm going to take up my cross out of love to the Father, follow me. To love God means to glorify and to enjoy Him. Christ is our model to glorify and enjoy Him through His doctrine and His dying. We glorify God the Father by receiving the doctrine of Christ and using it rightly. We enjoy God the Father by obeying Him out of love even if it should cause us to suffer. And, as is often the case, it's in the midst of our suffering obedience that we experience the love of the Father more deeply than we ever have. I'll leave you with the words of Paul the Apostle. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforted us in all of our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it's for your consolation and salvation. 
And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, such that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life, but we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus, for his doctrine, and for his dying. We pray you would help us to receive his doctrine rightly, and to follow his example in obeying you, and we pray that he would come quickly and receive us to himself. And we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.